And uh, if you take your seats, we'll get started. There are uh, plenty of uh, places in the uh, back here, and I want to say welcome. A very warm welcome to everyone who's come. And uh, I think we'll begin. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I don't have a handout today because, um, because uh, I've been away for a few days and need a moorhead. Now, I want to say something, just so you know. There are, uh, this uh, parish is a very complex institution. It's basically about as complicated, humanly speaking, as a small liberal arts college. It's roughly that kind of budget, that kind of, it's basically as complicated, essentially, as a small liberal arts college. But what happens is people here, uh, there are, you know, as always in institutions, there are 10 or 12 people who give enormously of themselves for the service of this church to operate. Uh, among those remarkable people that you see generally behind the scenes is Nita Moorhead. She's the dean's secretary, and she is my literary secretary, my secretary in all human professional senses, and she's the secretary to the vestry and chapter, and she is the factotum of an enormous amount of information with Mabel Shepard of what actually has gone on before us. And uh, I simply want to say that when she's not around, we really suffer. And when <laughs> she's here, I give great thanks. I had to press her to take days off today, this week. She wouldn't do it. And finally, I I had to negotiate that she'd take two extra days. That's the kind of commitment that an institution, and you're in some of them in other parts of life, requires. It's that kind of commitment that people like Mabel and their others bring to the equation. That's a long way of saying we have no handout today. <laughs> Let's begin by saying the Lord, but I, nevertheless, I've, I have something I'd very much like to say, even without a handout. Let's say the Lord's Prayer to begin. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, now, this Sunday, my topic is uh, gender and identity, part two. I've been looking at different forms of identity in human lives and how uh, the Christian faith understands them and uh, rates them. And the first was uh, uh, social class. Um, if you want to read the absolute ultimate send-up on social class, read the op-ed page in the Birmingham News. Was it Thursday or Friday? I th it was either Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday about Martha Stewart's background socially, among other things, and about the lure of a certain kind of look that people think New England Episcopalians had in the 1940s and read about Martha Stewart's actual origins in light of everything else by the man who wrote it is named Bob Whitcomb and he's a very long time friend of mine. He's the editorial editor of the Providence Journal and uh, his, uh, he's a very much a Jonathan Swift ethicist. He has a very high-minded view of his calling but he's very, very sort of cynical as well and his, his discussion of Martha uh, Stewart as sort of what we deserve and what it says about social class and what she says about social class, I don't have to preach another sermon ever on that subject. If you read the article from the Birmingham News, does anyone remember what day it was? In? Well, anyway, it's, it's in the paper. It's in our local paper. 
Friday? Okay, well, it's Thursday or Friday. Check it out. Now, today uh, we're talking about gender, and next week I'm going to begin a two-part series on parents, parents and identity. How is your identity um, affected and shaped by your mother and father? It's not going to be an attack on parenting, because Lord knows we've, any of us who have been fortunate enough to be have children are, are under the same... We are the children of our parents in so much as we are the parents of our children. But uh, I'm going to talk about identity and parents. But today, gender part two. And the, um, the passage, which you don't have, but it's from the same text that we did last week. I'm going to read and then talk about gender and this passage and then open it up. This is chapter 4, verse 13 through 15 of Romans. The promise to Abraham and his descendants that they should inherit the world did not come through the law, but it came through the righteousness of faith. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. I'm going to read that very famous passage, I mean, very striking passage again. The promise to Abraham and his descendants that they should inherit the world did not come through the law, but rather through, quote, the righteousness of faith, end of quote. For, verse 15, the law brings wrath or condemnation, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now that, anyone who's involved in the study of, the practice of, or the uh, bedevilment from the law will be uh, very uh, struck by that very, very radical statement. Now let me set this up about gender and about uh, this insight. Um, as we said before, gender is a given unlike a number of the others because unlike social class, which is very fluid, and the Bible is generally altogether more or less down on, especially the Old Testament prophets. And unlike uh, any number of other things you can name that are identity-seeking or identity-defining things about you, the Bible is generally down on those, but gender is in a slightly special case. Why is that? Because of natural theology, that, that word that is actually a word out of Catholic thought. I am not a natural theologian, but uh, what's that, Clarence Darrow? Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas is a natural theologian. Uh, he, uh, many people believe, and there's something to it, that God, having made us naturally the way we are, that is an inbuilt given that is even more powerful than something that we ourselves might achieve. And we know that uh, a gender has been built in because the Bible says specifically in Genesis, in the beginning, he made them male and female. Male and female created thee them. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus, in Mark 10, underlined that twice, in which he said, from the beginning, it has been said that a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. So um, there's something about maleness and femaleness that is very, very, very basic. And uh, it's uh, part of living at every level. And it is a little bit harder to dis gender uh, than some of the other more obvious uh, false uh, ways of defining yourself. Like, you know, just go to any high school. You know, everybody's in a strict, absolutely strict pigeonhole. When you went to high school, you may not have even known it, but you were in a strict pigeonhole. Every single person in the high school class, these are the most socially divided environments in the world, are elementary schools, uh, excuse me, uh, high schools. Now, um, 
the thing about gender is that it is built into the nature of things. It is uh, created by God. It has a purpose, obviously. And as a result, its power is exceedingly real. I always quote um, on the question of gender the allure of the uh, group Fleetwood Mac. Because although now they have declined, so they're actually selling the rumors, which is their masterpiece, if you consider it a masterpiece, their dark masterpiece, you now can get it in the Chevron stations. You know, you can always tell how low can you go. Teddy Prendergrass, Fleetwood Mac. Uh, there it is. But now, you know, $3 and you can buy on a tape of rumors. But if you want to sort of do a case study of the dark power of gender to possess and to create unbelievable distress and binding compulsion in human affairs, uh, listen to any song I can named by Fleetwood Mac, and they all lived it, you know, Stevie Nicks and Christine McVie, and they all lived it, and they all went to, you know, they all got involved with one another in serial forms, and the thing just crashed big time, and it's all been written about, and it's on MTV every night. Now, it's old and done with, but there's a song by Fleetwood Mac called The Chain. You can never break the chain. And it's, she sings her heart out, Chris, uh, Stevie Nicks in this one, that you can never, you can never. And it's the chain of romantic uh, infatuation, then disillusionment, then reinfatuation, then disillusionment. And it's uh, basically a rock and roll form of what the old lady in Gigi talks about, who basically is still dealing with romantic compulsion in her 80s. And uh, this is a powerful picture of the way of the, the chain, the compulsion that men and women have. Uh, uh, basically, um, all British uh, upper-class life is founded on the principle of adultery, and uh, it is a, an enormous, uh, it's also, I mean, you just don't want to go there. You don't want to spend any time, because they're so good at suppression. These are traditional, not immigrant English. These are traditional English, are so good at suppression. They are so, they, their mother's milk is suppression, that they can just lie to you unbelievably, and it's sort of a big trick over there. How, how can I, my passionate self is over here, but my public self is over here, and every member of the British, uh, you know, cabinet gets hoisted. Now, what have I said? I've said that not only from a Fleetwood Mac point of view, but from a Bible point of view, gender is an enormous and crushing reality to life. It is a, this powerful, propulsive uh, dimension that is as powerful at Kirkwood by the river as it is in uh, 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 Birmingham Southern. Let me repeat that. It is as powerful in Kirkwood by the river, which is a retirement community, as it is in, uh, in uh, any school you care to name. Uh, because the issues and things related to gender are so enormously hulking over our lives. And that's why he said from the beginning he made the male and female. Naturally, I wish it were not true at one level, because it divides the human race so powerfully and so irremediably. And so, as I often said, I always like that wonderful rubric from uh, the invasion of the body snatchers when the man is carrying his wife, and the headline was, was, he his, was she his woman or an alien life form? Now, that is, the, that is the, 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 the trouble of gender, is that you don't know, uh, uh, it, 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 what is, what, who is this man? Why does he react the way he does? Why does he get so upset about such a little thing? Why is, why is he so darned stubborn about something that matters so little? Uh, and then men say the same about women. So what is my point? Gender is a given. And it is a given of great power. And so it is amazing that Christianity might have an insight that is new. See, what happens in the history of ideas is you have this huge given. 
and you'll see it in all the, in all the go to Angkor Wat, you know, the sculptures. See the, just go to any culture and you'll see the, go to study Mayan art and you'll see the power of the drives involved in maleness and femaleness. And then you have an idea coming into the human equation from the mouth of St. Paul that is very truly a breakthrough. Now you have to understand that breakthroughs never come into life wholly born. Who is the Greek goddess that was born totally as an adult with everything ready to go? Athena. She was born with everything ready to go from Jupiter's head. And it is completely, that's a true myth. That, that's never happened in the history of, of, of life. That anyone, very often when I get up, I think I've got to brush my teeth, I've got to floss, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to weigh myself, I've got to, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, and I've got to dress, and all the things you think about, put this horrible stuff in my hair, all that stuff, and, uh, and you say, don't you ever think, I wish I could just snap my fingers and be fully dressed and ready to go. Well, you know, have to go through this charade for 25 hours to get ready. Um, uh, well, um, what happens in ideas is that ideas always come from somewhere. And in this particular situation, St. Paul, this is absolutely how it works. Divine inspiration, absolutely. But divine inspiration works through a man who's dealing in a very literate Mandarin culture with an ancient text. And in dealing with a text that is quite unusual from 1,300 years before, he comes upon a kind of interpretation of the text which puts him in a remarkable new place. And there is an idea here that is a breakthrough in the history of the world. Now we often say, I was reading the intro to Jane Eyre the other day, trying to get ready for my sermon. I was reading the intro by this horrible woman named Levis who uh, hated Christianity, who wrote this thing many years ago. But in the intro, what was I getting at here? Um, I've forgotten. But uh, the, uh, the uh, point is, the, an idea, you, you, you back in uh, to an idea, an idea suddenly comes and illuminates the night sky. And given gender's ubiquity and power, it is amazing that um, St. Paul received this idea. He was in a Mandarin culture, which means he took these ancient tests, he was studying it, and suddenly he found himself saying something that had never been said. And now I remember, Dr. Levis said of Charlotte Bronte, that the brilliance of Charlotte Bronte is she wrote psychologically before the discovery of psychology. Psychology was not discovered, and this is actually true. It was essentially discovered through Sigmund Freud, even though the things that it described have always been taking place. But some of these weird and neurotic writers, uh, because they were deeply feeling people, stumbled themselves onto ideas about the hidden selves of people that we today feel are very modern. But Paul found an idea in this sort of literate Mandarin culture that I want to talk about. What he did, let me, let me read this. The promise to Abraham and his descendants that they should inherit the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That is a reference to Genesis 15, where um, uh, the patriarch Abraham comes out and he is very uh, deeply... Um, unsettled by the fact that he doesn't have a male heir. And he looks out and he's very upset and he he's, he's gets up in the middle of the night because his whole future, as he understands it in ancient society, is completely blown by not having a male heir. And he goes out uh, fuming and God appears to him. And God says, Abraham, I realize you don't have a male heir. 
And he says, well, how can I? My wife is well past the age of childbearing. Um, and the Lord says, look up. Abraham looks at the stars, and he says, if you count the stars, that is as many as your descendants will be. That is a powerful statement. If you count the stars, you who have no fruit of your own body, nor your wife's, you will count the stars, and that is as many as your natural descendants will be. And then it says the key thing, and Abraham believed God, this is verse 6, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, this is a little tiny throwaway line. And what Paul read that, he said, ah, Abraham was given weight and affirmation, not because of doing something, but because of trusting. And he took that idea, it clicked with him, and he says, maybe this is what, what uh, the new age of Jesus Christ is about, such that... We, like our ancestor, years and years ago, do not receive our inheritance, our weight, our value from the law, which is performance, but rather we receive it through something called the righteousness of faith. We're given our value uh, in trusting the one who can do what we cannot do. Now then, however, he goes further, and I'm going to say one other thing and apply it to women and men, and then we're done. He then, like, you've seen this in yourself. You have one idea that's sort of not so original, and then you get another idea, which is a little bit new. And then all of a sudden, hey, we could, you know, hey, let's put on a play. You get another. <laughs> happens in life all the time, though. You, 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 your, your mind goes, and if you're electric, if you're sort of in the, in the mood, if it's, if it's humming for you, and it does hum, you come to the next step. And his mind then makes the key step. This is the key verse, and it's one of the most important verses in the history of thought. And this is how it goes. For the law brings judgment, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Well, what he is saying there is that the law has an intimate relationship with uh, human sin, and the law always brings condemnation. The law telling me what I ought to do always makes me feel bad because I can't do it. it. It is invariable. The law inevitably brings judgment because of the kind of persons we are. The law inevitably brings wrath. If someone says to you, listen, I've got a little piece of advice for you. <laughs> you oh, that's the worst thing anyone can say to me. <coughs> or, hey, can I have five seconds with you? Um, you're not going to like this, but oh, yeah, go away. You know, I'm out of here. Uh, who, the, we, we are, don't think that you will ever get your children to ever, and I speak from bitter experience as a parent, to change anything by virtue of judgment because, as he says, the law brings wrath. But then he, he makes the, he, he says, oh, well, if that's so, if there's no law, then there's no transgression. If there's no thou shalt not, then there's no, yes, I will. The need to act out not only goes down, it goes to zero in the face of there being no law. Well, um, now I want to uh, finish. The problem about women and men is comparison. We think that the more we're in touch with maleness or femaleness, and the more we read men are from... Venus, isn't that right? And women are from Neptune. 
No, uh, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. We think that that's somehow good because we'll understand this chaotic alien person who lives with me or this very uptight man or whoever it is. You're going to understand the person. What um, the Bible says here is that comparison is the absolute killer. And focusing on things like identity, like maleness and femaleness, instead of this being a good thing, that this is a tragic mistake. We thought that if we understood what femaleness is all about or something like that, and we understood what maleness is all about, which we're trying to do now, we would get somewhere. And what Paul says is that comparison always brings judgment. But where there is no judgment, there is no need to assert. Um, and that's the power of this. Um, basically, uh, well, that's, that's really essentially what I, I want to communicate, that the um, essence of the question is to uh, lower the power of the uh, idea to nothingness in order for there to be any communication, because a man and a woman simply cannot communicate if there's any judgment. I mean, I wish it were true. And I would like to be able to straighten out certain people that I live with. And I know they'd like to straighten me out, because it, obviously it's, it's much worse on my side. I mean, there are all sorts of things. Don't, don't you find this? Let's say you're in your 40s. You find you, things don't change as much as they used to. You're, you're less open, you know? And it, when you're, you, you just are. I don't care who. The, the older you get, the less likely you are going to change. If you're 20, rejoice that you're slightly malleable. And if you're six months, this is very important. But you, 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 the malleability of the human personality goes down just astronomically after about whatever age you want to name. And so what you find is in marriage or between men and women or people who aren't married or whatever gender comes in, you are judging the other person like mad. And the moment that begins, especially on the gender front, you, um, there is no one who's more unhappy than a genuine misogynist. You know, there is no one who is more miserable than a man who hates women. And they exist. And there are many women, especially now, there are many women who hate men. There's, a, there's an increasing legion of women who hate men, quay men, and there's always been a lot of fuddy-duds of people who hate women. And we all know this, because sometimes we get into these alarming primitive states and these horrible ideas start coming into your subconscious. Um, the point of this is where there's no comparison, there's no um, sin. And I wonder what you think about that as an approach to maleness and femaleness. That's my little spiel for today. I've got more to say, I always do, but, uh, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'd like to know from those of you who think about these questions, uh, the whole issue of comparison and judgment as it relates to male and female differentiation. Who wants to make a comment or make a, ask a question? Don Gordon. What more evidence? Of, I couldn't agree with you more. It's so, it makes it so real that this man could say both of those things. It's a powerful evidence of divine inspiration. I happen to agree with you 100%.
Who else wants to uh, to comment? Yes, Lisa. Right. And then all of a sudden they'll start screeching about the patriarchy. Right. And I don't know, in my own case, um, having that taken away from me, the uh, nasty judgment thing, uh, all of a sudden I didn't feel so upset about men. <laughs> well, that's very powerful. Thank you. I'm reminded of any English department. I don't know if any of you have spent any time in an English department recently in any American university. And what you'll discover is that the key to all interpretation is that all basic intellectual standards are patriarchal male attempts to keep down women. Uh, and that is a very powerful, uh, very, very seductive uh, idée fixe that you find in college departments of English and other studies. And of course, if you believe that, where does that put you? I mean, it, if, if it's true, that would make me very uncomfortable. Well, it's always well, deep down, it's personal. But who else wants to comment about this judgment, condemnation thing in St. Paul vis-a-vis -vis gender? Jim. Uh, you made a comment one time. Maybe it wasn't you, but I'm pretty sure it was you. <laughs> Carry on. That when you make a judgment, it's almost certain that you are at least 20% wrong and possibly even longer. Yep. So I think uh, making judgments is a, uh, sort of a bad idea. The best thing to do is just love them. <laughs> Making judgments is a bad idea. Best thing to do is just love them, whoever the um are. I, I agree so powerfully with you. Um, I was saying to a group the other day that, that always assume that you're at least 20% wrong about everything. Probably 50% wrong, usually 80% wrong, uh, but definitely no less than 20% wrong. I want to expand on that just for a moment. So those of you who weren't there last week, what I, have, what I tried to say was that the reason we know that maleness and femaleness is not, is not determinative is three things. The first one was that men uh, mourn loss of those they love to the same extent that women mourn loss of those they love. That mourning, if you've ever been in grieving situations, and many of you have, you've noted that a man can, can be as devastated by the loss of someone he loves as a woman can be devastated. There seems to be no change uh, uh, on that front. Secondly, you find that a woman and a man are equally susceptible to guilt and to judgment. It may be acted out in a different format, but uh, there's nothing, uh, men and women have equivalent uh, receptors for being judged or condemned. Um, and uh, th th this is, uh, I see as much anxiety in women in situations as I see in men in other situations. And thirdly, men need the same amount of love as women need. And what is, the, how much of that, how much is it? 100%. Men and women both need 100% love. And these things, which is kind of what you last said, that's why I say it, these things bring together the, uh, the, 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 the sexes. And that is ultimately why gender is a temporary 
uh, fact of human and identity. And I get very, very nervous when uh, a, a lot of lesbians whom I meet or know or read about uh, are so uh, very uh, strong on, on being female and the whole thing of women's, that, that makes me very nervous because inevitably I feel like that disenfranchises 50% of the human race. And I often find this, sometimes I find it in gay men. It's almost as if 50% of the human race, you know, except for Bette Midler and a couple of these Judy Garland type people, 50% uh, of the human race doesn't really exist in any meaningful sense of interchange and codependence. And that, that makes me nervous about the gay phenomenon on both sides of that. Um, and uh, Professor Higgins, as I said, and, uh, who doesn't like women, right? Until he meets one. He meets the right one. And he's, he's carried away. Uh, and he changes his entire perspective based upon the love that he begins to have a tad of with Eliza Doolittle. Other comments uh, on this? Yes, uh, Mrs. Aiken. Uh, and, and yes, first Mrs. Aiken, yes. Um, I want to say, say Debbie, but it's not Debbie. It's Patsy. Patsy. You. Stand up if you don't mind. Having a son and a daughter who are young. Right. So that to me speaks of a deeper humanness rather than just simply the little girl who likes bows and little boy who likes, you know, guns or whatever. Right. But their needs and what they express themselves in a genuine place is very similar to mine. You know, it's going to be Thank you, Patsy. That's very powerful. Wow. Just and behind Patsy. Yes, Jim. Adaptation. Yes. Good question. I don't have the answer to that. What about adaptation? Thank you for sharing. <laughs> yes. Yep. Oh, I see. Adaptation as love. Oh, I thought for a moment you were talking about hermaphroditism. <laughs> Yes, I thank you very much. Adaptation of relationships. Let, let, me, let me underline my point. There's also, I think, uh, uh, Paula has a point. Let me just say one more thing. What I'm saying is that the gospel message brings a point of view about human change that is fresh in the history of ideas. And you will not see, this is the most radical thing that Paul ever says. He says, where there is no law at all, there is no sin. What he means is that the birth of the bad impulse lies in the no from outside. It's a very, the impulse was pregnant or nascent, dormant, but it was, it was uh, catalyzed and brought to life by the no. And what I want to say is, if you think seriously about that, that is extremely powerful, because basically it says that what Christianity is about is lowering the demand of the law. Now, many people think Christianity is about heightening the demand of the law. 
But the actual fact is, true Christianity is about lowering the demand of the law, believing that human nature always flourishes with less condemnation rather than more. And this is true in life. You, you, when you are really loved without judgment, this is why most people leave the people they're married to, because they feel, they feel that they have discovered a love that doesn't have judgment. And that is such a powerful need for human beings that it's the pearl of great price. It is the pearl of great price. You will go anywhere to have a love that does not convey judgment. Now, unfortunately, it often happens in the wrong time in individuals' lives. But the essence of this is that Christianity is essentially a lowering of the law, not a heightening of the law. Now, we could say a lot about that, but I wanted to underline that as the theme. And I do know this, that the more I get beyond thinking about maleness and femaleness, the better off I am because I'm constantly punting back. Well, you have to understand, Mary, men feel, you know, what is that? You know, and because we think that women are, you know, I mean, A, that's, talk about 20% wrong, Jim. That's about 90% wrong. I, when I start popping off, I don't know if any of you ever, have you ever started sort of shooting off with a person of the opposite sex about your ideas about what men are like and what women are like? And if I, if I, if I tape recorded them and we played them today, and you would leave this place never to return. <laughs> you would go to Alaska. Because the things that have come out of your mouth, and I speak of myself, are so unbelievably self-serving. Uh, and so it is absolutely crucial that we lower the concept of femaleness and maleness. That at least is my view. It's not everybody's view. Paula, last question, and then Dick, and then we're done. Well, it's not a question. I was just going to say, I think all great minds are androgynous. All great minds are androgynous. Ooh, I had a little... I, I believe you're right, but I'm a little nervous. Uh, all great minds are androgynous. Wow. All great minds, are, well, there's a lot to be said about that. I don't want to be one then. No, I'm just kidding. I, I, well, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. That, that, that the great thought and great truth is irrespective of the gender difference. That, that's what I believe you're saying. Thank you for that. Dick Shepard, last point. Mental? Mental characteristics. Yep. Men and women seem to have a spectrum, a distribution of logic systems, but if you take the peak, women's logic systems seem different from men often. Hmm. But they're complementary. They reinforce each other. They're helpful. And I think that, that these differences are not bad things, they're good things. Because they Wow. Wow, what a, what a powerful thing to say. Jeannie, you're shaking, you're, you're nodding. Do, do you agree with that? I think that's very well said. Yeah. Very well said. Wow, complimentary. Anybody else want to come in? Uh, Mary, do you have a thought at this point that you want to <laughs> just bring in? <laughs> Hang on, just don't. Stand up just so I can see you. How you get from comparison to judgment. How, how you're, you're, you're equating comparison to judgment. Yes. Well, um, I'm equating comparison to judgment because, um, you see, in the, in, the new in the letters of Paul, law 
is a is a profoundly powerful uh, principality. It's a it's a it's a it's a it's an invisible force. It's like uh, it's like anxiety, or it's like depression sometimes. That it's we don't see it, but it's all around us, and it could, it's body jumping. It's body jumping, like in you know the X Files. It's it it's it jumps from body to body, and these forces. And what um, the the, the uh, this passage, which is so profound that the that where there is no uh, law, there is no condemnation, means that the the origin of of that human beings are unbelievably susceptible to judgment. This is why whenever anyone asks you for advice, never give it ever in 100% of cases. Now I fall into it all the time and I give it, right? Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not looking at anyone who are led to me by blood, but uh, it, 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 the, the power of these, uh, it, it, what no one in the history of the world has ever wanted advice the way you think that they, the way it is. All they want is to be listened to. Not 90%, 100%. What happens uh, with comparison, comparison, any standards, any standards are a law. A beautiful woman is a law to a woman who does not consider herself beautiful. It's not her fault, obviously. Well, so in my opinion it is. No, just kidding. Uh, but, but you have to understand, any judgment, any comparison, if you compare your child to somebody else, even in your mind, you're doing them a terrible disservice. Uh, because uh, comparison always is the power over the thing to which it's compared. Um, and you all know this, just anybody who anybody's ever compared you with has become a law and you hate them. See, there's no sin where there's no law. If there were no comparison, you wouldn't hate her. I mean, I will not go to my Harvard 35th reunion. I don't care what, I don't care if you pay me a million dollars, I'm not going to go. I've never been, and I don't, see, I can tell, I'm already feeling strong about it. You, I, I don't intend to go, I've never been, and I'm ne never going to go. Uh, that I could eat my words, but because I don't want to see uh, myself in comparison with my peers. I just don't want to see it. Um, I, the last thing I want to do is see so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so so in comparison with whatever I think I've been. And I avoid it like the plague. Um, that's, comparison is always judgment. And that's why we all do best, if possible, to compare not at all. Is there one other? Uh, yes, Becky, last point, then we're done. Hmm. We're, we're judging them to make ourselves feel better about who we are or what we're doing or what we thought we should be doing or what we have been doing. Yes. So often passing judgment, I feel like it's not, um, it's an affirmation of who, what we believe. Huh. What you just said, yes. I'm not wanting to go to Harvard because you don't want to see what you haven't seen. <laughs> don't say it. <laughs> no, but I... You don't want to say what you haven't become. You don't want to see what you haven't become. This is why I just told our young people, our young people, I can't believe, I can't believe those words came out of my mouth. I swore 30 years ago I'd never say anything like that. But during my sermon, I said for the 14-year-olds, don't, watch, if you ever peak early, <laughs> never peak early. Because if you peak early, you'll go back later and you'll be a drunk or a fat or whatever it is, whatever it is, or a failure. Please don't peek early. Thank you for hearing me out. Let me finish. Uh, this uh, next uh, week is Rally Sunday, and I will begin, uh, I will, I'm going to do this about four more weeks. I'm going to do identity and one's parents next week and the week after, and then I'm probably going to do uh, probably identity and one's um,
failures and also identity and one's hurts. And that will probably be the extent of it. So, John, I'm sorry, I just remembered I'd forgotten you. I didn't mean to. Um, let us say the grace together. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore.